Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I had the opportunity to sit down with the one and only Scott McKnight, New Testament scholar and professor at Northern Seminary. Scott is such an important voice in the church today, having written over 60 books, including his latest, Open to the Spirit. Scott regularly speaks at conferences and churches around the world and invites us all to explore deep questions of faith as we focus on the centrality of Jesus Christ. Now, on this week's episode, Scott and I have a wonderful conversation about the Holy Spirit, including the challenging reality that the way we approach ministry often crowds out the work of the Holy Spirit. Scott shares insights on how we can take intentional steps to open ourselves and our people to the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is such a great discussion, so let's not waste any more time. So join me now in my conversation with Scott McKnight. Scott, what a blessing it is to have you with us again here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for making the time to share with our listeners. Thanks, Jason, for inviting me. It's good to to be back. Awesome, brother. Now, we are going to be discussing one of my absolute favorite topics, um, one that I actually wish we talked about much more, and that is the Holy Spirit. Now, you've just written a new book entitled Open to the Holy Spirit, so I'm confident, Scott, that this conversation is going to be rich. And to sort of kind of till the soil for our conversation today, I'd like to begin by addressing something I've noticed over my years in ministry. It seems that some people, whether pastor, ministry leader, parishioner, they tend to keep the Holy Spirit at a distance, almost as if they think the Holy Spirit is somehow, um, I don't maybe dangerous, although I don't think they'd probably phrase it that way. In fact, I've literally had colleagues, I was thinking about this, um, who said to me that they don't want their small group leaders teaching about the Holy Spirit because uh. they're fearful that somehow, you know, it could lead to something strange, something they'd have to go back and, and, and fix. Scott, why is it that in some churches there's this kind of underlying fear of getting kind of too close to the Holy Spirit? Jason, this is fascinating because uh, since uh, Open to the Spirit has come out, I think I've been asked a question like this a dozen times. It is amazing because, and I thought that was the case. Uh, I have seen in churches a hesitancy. You know, Francis Chan called it the forgotten God. I've seen a hesitancy about the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the main uh, issues here is, uh, let's call it education or information. Lots of people just don't know what the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit. And because the word spirit, they can just glide over when they're reading the Bible, uh, they they just seem to be able to ignore so many texts in the New Testament that talk about the Holy Spirit. The other side, uh, another dimension that I've seen that I think is involved is experience. And I have had myself some bona fide, uh, goofy experiences with people in church settings, in individual settings, that I have to say made me hesitant and nervous about people talking about the Spirit. And some of the people who talk about the Spirit the most are the people who I think um, are the least 
influenced by the Spirit. And then the third one to me is is what I think you're getting at, and that's fear. And the fear to me is connected to change and the fear of losing control. When we become open to the Spirit, we are actually, uh, let's just say, opening up a valve so that the Spirit's juices will flow throughout our system. It's sort of like getting a blood transfusion or something. I don't know much about those kinds of things. But it is uh, opening up to the Spirit is a way of surrendering control of our own lives. And if we surrender to the Spirit, we are also surrendering uh, our, our, the lordship of our life from ourselves. So I think that I think you've nailed it. I think you're exactly right. Many people are afraid of the spirit. Uh, they think it's dangerous because if they surrender to the spirit, goofy things might happen. Well, it just so happens that when the original big day of the Holy Spirit came, we call it Pentecost Sunday now, uh, when we remember Pentecost from Acts chapter 2, what was the accusation? Some people were impressed, but others said these people are drunk on wine. So th the essential idea is they thought they were either weird or that they were intoxicated. And that right there is a common reaction, response, evaluation, observation of people who have been controlled by the Spirit is they're not acting the way non-spiritual, unfilled people act. They are there. Maybe there's joy, maybe there's ability, capacity uh, that they've transcended and and been transformed, and they're beginning to act in powerful ways. And this can can frighten people. So, you know, when you when you ask that question, I say that th this is the way I think about that kind of question because I think it's a really good one. Yeah. Do, do you think that in the church world, oftentimes we we might feel we're a little too refined for the the strange things that can happen with the spirit? Uh, too, let's say, liturgically predictable and consistent and constrained or contained. Let's say, you know, I'm in an Anglican church, but it doesn't matter if you're in an Anglican church or a Baptist church or a non-denominational church. Most churches have a church order for Sunday morning services. If you go to a Bible study, there's probably a liturgical order. They may not be using preformed words, but they'll say, this is what we're going to do, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to leave. Uh, that sort of orderliness, containedness, uh, constrainedness, that sort of predictability, consistency, and disallowance for any kind of freedom is exactly, those are the sorts of things that make people nervous, because when the Spirit comes and the Spirit seizes control, things might happen that were unplanned, and the things that do happen that are unplanned might just be the things God wants to be done in our community. So we're back to the issue of control and containment. We would like the Spirit to be contained in our traditions and in our predictions, and in our expectations, but it almost seems to be one-to-one -one that when the Spirit seizes control of a person or a situation, the words they speak 
the actions they do, the relations they form are unpredictable, almost wild and chaotic. They are not tamed, and yet they are the very work of God in the world. Yeah, that, that's so good. But what would you say to the person who says, well, oh, hold on, Scott, um, God is a God of order? Yeah, well, I would say that what that means in 1 Corinthians is that things uh, that God wants people who speak in tongues to have an interpreter so that it doesn't become chaos. But what we see in the New Testament and in the early church, and frankly, what we see in solid charismatic contexts, which are typical throughout the world of Christianity and not typical in North America and European Christianity, what we see is something that breaks out of typical boundaries and forms a greater freedom and latitude in what God is doing in our world. So I, I think that the claim that God is a God of order is an important one, because I, I would put it this way, that what the Spirit does today will be consistent with what the Spirit does in the New Testament, but it, it will expand and extend that. Here's my example. Paul believed that in Christ, Gentiles could believe and therefore would form a singular and single church or body of people called the church, and that it would be a mixture of people who previously were not mixed. And that is, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. He largely repeats those words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, and talks a little bit more there about barbarians and Scythians, which are ethnic groups, and um, social aspersions or, or degrading of other people as barbarians and Scythians. And Paul was saying that in Christ, uh, these things are going to be broken down. Now, that, that's the idea. But what, what does it look like in reality? Well, look at the book of Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon, to the slaves. What did it look like in the early church actually to say there will be neither slave nor free in the church? Were they going to revolutionize the Roman Empire and end slavery? Or were they going to go step by step through the power of the Spirit and in promptings of the Spirit to begin to dismantle? Now, I'm a little nervous about saying they were actually beginning to dismantle, because I'm not sure how much Paul believed on the end of slavery, and it took 19 centuries anyway for the church to do this. So I, I don't want to give them, I don't want to overdo it on what was going on. But clearly in Philemon, Paul says to the slave owner, yes, Philemon was a slave owner. Paul says to the slave owner, you're going to, I want you to receive him back, welcome him as you would welcome me. And he says, no longer as a slave, but a brother. What happens when the Spirit of God seizes control in the United States, in communities that have different ethnicities, white, African-American, Asian-American, Latin American? What happens when these brothers and when these people, these different groups, become Christians and worship together 
and they become brothers and sisters, when they become siblings in Christ, that is where the Spirit of God is working, and it will be hard, and it will be challenging, and it will be invigorating and stimulating, and it will get at times way beyond what we ever expected. Right there is what I'm saying. He's a God of order, right? but this order will disorder the structures of the world that we live in. We live in a world of classism and, and, and racism and educationism and all these kinds of statuses and structures, but the world of the spirit, the world of the gospel is one that disorders what we consider to be orderly and reorders it into a brand new kingdom order. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's I'm so preaching. Good. I like it. Preach, brother. Preach, brother. I, I want to move to something else that seems to oftentimes pop up in, in conversations. And it seems that many times the Holy Trinity is somewhat altered. And I wouldn't say necessarily blatantly, but, but oftentimes in practice, so that rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are many who sort of adopt this pseudo-trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Right, the, the spirit is less emphasized. The scriptures more emphasized. Sometimes to the point of almost being idolized. Scott, can you kind of talk us through uh, why why does this tend to happen sometimes? That there's this displacement between the Holy Spirit almost seems kind of left out, but then Scripture seems to be elevated. Okay, yeah, I've I've heard it said, Father, Son, and Holy Scripture instead of Holy Spirit. It, it almost sounds alike. All right. Jason, let me put it this way first. This is, uh, I'm not trying to be provocative, but I know I'm deadly accurate. This is only a problem for white Christians. Hmm. Not all white Christians, but predominantly white Christians. Latin American, African American, African, Latin, South American, Asian Christianity is loaded with the Spirit. Hmm. We in the West, as a result of modernity and scientism and empiricism and materialism, have covered the universe. Let's say we go back to the dome of Genesis 1 before God broke it open. So we've put a dome over our world and we've closed the universe and no longer is the spirit welcome. But that is only the case in certain parts of the church. It is not the case in the church worldwide. What, what is the estimate of the number of Southern Baptists in the world? I think I've heard him say there are 16 million. And I've also heard him say that is a very generous uh, estimation. There are 650 million Pentecostals in the world. Those people are all open to the Spirit. And I teach at a seminary, Northern Seminary, and I don't know the percentages, but I would, I would guess that 25 to 50 percent of my students are on the charismatic side of the ledger. Uh, I don't know the, how many of them are st the stronger form of the charismatic movement I would call Pentecostal. I don't know how many of them are that far. But I am convinced that we have cut off the spirit in the empirical West the materialistic West, the scientific West. And so the problem is far more that we have closed the universe 
And now we say we got a problem. Uh, yeah, we got a problem and it's us. It's not the reliability or the viability of miracles. It's that we live in a world that doesn't permit it, doesn't think about it. We don't even move in that direction. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I think that has to be said is that this hesitancy about the spirit is largely contained in the white evangelical Christian world and white mainline world. That's interesting. Now, speaking to the white Western church, what do we need to do to help overcome this? You know, how do we get beyond how we've tamed the the Holy Spirit to such a degree? Well, I think we need to have a revolution, a spiritual revolution of teaching, of practicing the presence of the Spirit. So let's say this, that we have got to return to the scriptures of the Bible that talk about the Holy Spirit more often. But we also need to have people who have experienced the Spirit and who can talk about spiritual experience and spiritual guidance and the life in the Spirit. I was just reading a very academic book by Bruce Hindmarsh, a brilliant church historian at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, a really fine scholar, an Oxford University Press book called The Spirit of Early Evangelicalism on Wesley and Whitfield and Skugel and other people like this. And in this book, what struck me was how much language we found on in the diaries and in the sermons and in the books of John Wesley and George Whitfield about the Spirit and their personal experience of the Spirit. In fact, in Wesley's journals, I could be wrong. I, I'm pretty sure it's it's Wesley's Wesley's Holy Club had this way of grading themselves throughout the day, like a dozen times a day, in which they would give a, a number evaluation of how intimate they felt with the Holy Spirit. And this is the foundation of American evangelicalism, but we are so far from the foundations that we think, as we read them, that they're a little bit extreme. And maybe they are the ones who are the norm, and we are the ones who have diminished the significance of the Spirit. So I would say we have to we have to read those scriptures, and we have to be open to the Spirit, and then we have to pray for revival. We have to pray for revolution. We have to pray that God will give us the Holy Spirit in new ways and drench us in such a way that we will pop open the universe and join the rest of our brothers and sisters throughout the world in an open universe where God is fundamentally interactive with all that we say and do. Okay, that's good. So let's let's dig in a little more to this idea of us being open to the Spirit. I mean, I know that's your book entitled Open to the Spirit. You just dig in, you look at different scriptural passages, and, and just kind of walk us through uh, many different topics around the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're all created to be receptive to the Spirit. We are all, in the very true sense of the word, spiritual beings. And I'd imagine, Scott, if, if you and I were to sit down individually with every pastor, every ministry leader that's listening today and ask them, hey, are you open to the Holy Spirit? I'd imagine everyone would say, of course, right? And, and as yeah, I kind of look yeah. back and reflect on my own journey, 
I think many times I've been convinced that I've been open to the Spirit, but kind of in retrospect, I see that although I was sincere, I was only open to a degree, right? I, I had some some boundaries set up. As long as the Spirit was at work, you know, within those boundaries, I'm all for it. How, how do we open ourselves up to the Spirit without fencing in the Spirit? Well, I mean, that's a that's an interesting question. I think we've got the Spirit nicely fenced. Uh, I think we need to knock down some fences. But um, I would say uh, that we need to we need to do a fresh evaluation, Jason, mm-hmm. about whether we really are open to the Spirit. And this week I'm preparing a sermon for our church on Pentecost, which means I'm reading Acts 2 and looking at the early chapters of Acts. And one of the things that I've pondered, I, and I may mention in the sermon, I may not, are characteristics of the early Christians who were experiencing the presence of the Spirit in their life. Okay, what, what did it look like? Well, one of the characteristics, of course, is that they had power. Spirit, power. And Jesus says, I will pray, and, and you know, that you will have the power. You will have the power to be my witnesses. So there was power involved. There was courage. One of the great words used in the book of Acts for the early Christians was parousia in Greek. Boldness, usually in most translations, courage. And there was a sense of conviction. They knew, they knew, what, they, they knew what was going on. They looked around and they say, these people are indwelt by demons. They are against the work of God. You know, when you say that today, people think you're a little bit nuts. (laughs) And if you say that the Spirit of God is guiding me right now to say this to you, people might think you're nuts too. That's a sign that we are not open to the Spirit. So to me, I think what is really critical is that we need to, to do a fresh evaluation of how our lives match up with the early Christians who clearly were experiencing the Spirit. And then... I think we need to measure our lives alongside people in our church traditions that we value and honor as noble Christians in the faith. So if you're a Methodist, you want to look at John Wesley. If you're more Calvinist, you want to look at George Whitfield. If you're more, you know, pietist, you're going to look at Sinzendorf and Spiner and Franke. You're going to look at the people who were dynamic leaders in your tradition, who helped create your tradition. And ask yourself if what you are experiencing uh, is characteristic of what they were experiencing and if what they are experiencing is characteristic of what we are experiencing. And I, what I am convinced of, nobody can disagree with me unless they want to be wrong, <laughs> is, that, is that we really fall short of people like Wesley and Whitfield. And yes, we can say that God used them in special ways at a special time. Yes, and Moody, Spurgeon. Billy Graham, etc. But it is the case that these are ordinary human beings whom God used, and what we see in them is the sort of thing that God can be doing in us. And I think we fall short of genuinely opening ourselves up to the power of the Spirit in our life. Power, courage, conviction, uh, miracles, tongue speaking, these were all expressions of the early church, and I'm not afraid of any of those things. I've never spoken in tongues. 
I've seen miracles occur. I've prayed for miracles to occur. I'm not afraid of praying for miracles to occur. I'm all for anointing people with oil. I believe that we have to be open to what God might do. There's no guarantee that everything we pray for will occur. That happened in the early church as well, and it's mm-hmm. happened throughout the history of the church. But that doesn't mean we can say, well, Lord, I just want your will to be done. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I have a close friend whose wife has cancer, stage four, which, you know, that's not a good uh, diagnosis. Right. And we got a letter from her last night that went out to a lot of people who are praying for her. And she uh, expressed the fact that she's uh, she wants to live in the will of God no matter what happens. And um, she talked about praying for healing. And one of my uh, former teachers and a, a friend uh, said, and I'm praying really hard for healing and that God still heals. Now, this is a person who's well-known in the evangelical circles who is not connected in any way, shape, or form to Pentecostalism or the charismatics, but he reads the New Testament the way I read it, and he says, look, the God of the New Testament is a healer, and the God of the Old Testament is a healer, and we need to be open to the healing work of the Spirit in our world, and it's not going to happen just because we're sitting here exegeting Scripture with Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. It's going to happen because God can do it, and because we open ourselves up to the work of God in our world. Amen. Now, Scott, you, you were talking, I love what you're talking about there in um, going back and, and really looking at the first Christ followers and in kind of assessing our lives um, against what they were experiencing and, and how they were living and how the, the early church, you know, was, was just kind of taking off. Let's talk a little bit about reading Scripture and how the Holy Spirit is active— as we're reading Scripture. So the Holy Spirit was involved in, obviously, the creation of Scripture, but then the Holy Spirit is also involved every time we open up Scripture. Can you talk to us a bit about how we can, whether it's for ourselves personally or as we're ministering to others, better understand what does it mean to read Scripture in a manner that is that is more attentive, really, to the work of the Holy Spirit? Jason, this is a good question. I have a chapter in the book on this, and I wrote the chapter for myself because I'm an academic and I'm a historian, and I can write books about the Bible and go through exegesis and ponder Greek words and be 50 pages later, and we're only through three verses. (laughs) People like me need to pay attention to something else other than just Careful, exegetical work, historical evidence, documentation, footnotes, other scholarship, interaction, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, we, we can sometimes turn Scripture exegesis, our Bible reading, into a purely rational exercise. There are some people I know who are never tempted to do this, that whenever they pick up the Bible— Uh, They are listening to God speak to them. But I know a lot of people, because I live in this world of academics and Bible interpreters, who when they open up the Scripture, they say things like this. But in the original context, that's not what that word meant. Hmm. And that's impressive. And And I believe in that. But we are not done 
listening to Scripture and reading Scripture until God addresses us personally in the depth of our heart. So a few years ago, I I made a change. Uh, this is a couple decades, proud man. Yeah, two decades ago, I made a personal change. I was uh, overtly and confessionally a rationalist about biblical interpretation. One of my seminary, now he wasn't a teacher, he was a, a colleague of mine later, said that his professor of Hebrew at a Jewish university knew more about the book of Romans than any Christian he's ever met. Mm. And he used this as an illustration that Jews who are unbelievers can interpret scripture and understand its meaning better than Christians. And he was using that as an illustration that exegesis is a rational exercise. And I bought into that theory because, you know, I've, I've read some books by people who I know who are unbelievers, and I've learned things from them. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's what goes on. And I do think that there's a rational dimension to the interpretation of Scripture. But over time, I became convinced, number one, that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John never, and the, especially the writer of Hebrews, never read Scripture that way. And the more I've learned about the Old Testament prophets, the more I've seen that they are interacting with one another and interpreting uh, previous prophetic words and reusing them and readapting them. The fancy German word is vergegenwärtigung. They reactualize previous words. And as I read that, I thought the whole Bible is almost constructed as an ongoing dialogue of one author with another. So that when Jesus is speaking, he is involved in uh, a hermeneutical exercise. That is, he's reading the Bible and interpreting it in light of how people have interpreted it and read it in, hi in history in the Jewish world. And we need to do the same thing, and that the Spirit is guiding this process. So that's one thing. The second thing is this. If you look at the, at the text of the New Testament about the Bible— particularly 1 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is given by uh, inspiration. This is uh, God-breathed. That's a, a spirit word. And 2 Peter chapter 1, that the prophets were guided by the Spirit, blown along by the Spirit. We realize that Scripture is the result of God's Spirit at work on an author in a community. We can't divorce the author from the community of, of which he or she is living, and these words come to expression as expressions of what the Spirit wants to speak to people. If that is the case, if the Spirit is attending these words, every time we read these words, the Spirit is present. Mm. Every time we try to speak, clarify, explain, describe what is in Scripture, the Spirit of God is at work. So I don't believe that we can ever rationally understand Scripture without the Spirit of God being present. So here's the big mistake. I heard it recently. Someone does a 50-minute sermon and finishes with this. Now, Lord, use your Spirit to apply these words to our life. And their, their point was, 
Now that I've explained the Bible for you rationally, now we want the Spirit to apply it. I wanted to stand up and say, sorry, buddy, <laughs> but the sermon from the very beginning, because you were looking at Scripture, was already attended by the Spirit, and the Spirit has been working in us the whole time. Right. And sometimes we have let our minds daydream, and we didn't even know what you were saying, but the Spirit of God was speaking to us in our deep spirit and in our deep earnings, uh, yearnings and desires. So I believe that every contact with Scripture, from beginning to end, from the, wor the first word we see on the page or read on the page, to the closing of the book and the moving on in, in our day, is a Spirit-guided process of hearing from the Spirit. Amen. I love that. I love that, brother. Now, um, this has been powerful, but I want to, before we go, I just want to open open this up to you, Scott, because we have tens of thousands of pastors and ministry leaders listening, and you've got their ear right now, and there's so much that you touch upon in your book. Um, I mean, you, you just go, you know, chapter after chapter after chapter digging into this, uh, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit and how it shows up in Scripture and, and what it means and, and how it unfolds. But what maybe haven't we covered today in our conversation that you want to be sure to share with uh, our brothers and sisters that are in ministry leadership about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I was just looking at, at the, my cover to my book, Jason. I was saying many people will know about Gordon Fee's book, God's Empowering Presence, about 800 pages. This is Gordon Fee for dummies. Uh, this is <laughs> this is the whole the whole Bible's understanding of the Spirit, or a lot of it, uh, in which I tried to reduce it and try to clarify it for ordinary people. But if I have uh, if I have one thing I would I would want to say to pastors and church leaders, and that is, I believe that we need to invoke the Spirit far more often than we do. I don't know what your practice is, but my practice is the Jesus Creed of uttering, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself on a routine basis. At different times in my life, I have invoked the Spirit in situations. And I, I try to pray for the Spirit, and sometimes I forget. Before I preach and before I teach and before I read Scripture and before I write. In the early church, there was a tradition already at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century that when Christians got up in the day, they made the sign of the cross over their whole day. You know, over their eating, over their walking, over their working, over their relationships, over their buying, their selling, their relationship with, with wife and children, etc. And I thought that I, when I first read that, I was so impressed uh, because I, I have always liked the sign of the cross and making the sign of the cross. But some people think it's spooky and mystical and magical and superstitious. So I was really glad to hear that it was very early in the church that this developed. And so I, I like that. And I like this as a practice. I believe that we need to invoke the spirit more often as a practice. And I'm working on this myself, you know, to say to God, I am open to the spirit. Give me the courage to be open to the Spirit. Give me your Spirit, Lord. I am open to the Spirit now. Come, Holy Spirit. 
Before we get into a conversation that we need to, before we make a sale, before we conduct a meeting, we need to be more spirit conscious of invoking the spirit to be present in us and with us so that the spirit can guide us and prompt us and lead us into a fuller gospel life and a fuller gospel decision as, as we ponder these things. So that, uh, for me, that this is the point of the whole book, is to get people to be open to the Spirit and to learn to pray that kind of prayer of invocation. Amen. Amen. That just a consistent prayer that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is welcome, that the Holy Spirit um, just kind of infuses our lives, moment by moment even. I, I love that, brother. Well, Scott, uh, so good once again to have you with us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. We certainly appreciate uh, your words today, Um, encouragement, inspiration, challenge even, and uh, our prayer and our hope is that um, as pastors and ministry leaders are listening, that that indeed they would, um, their hearts would be opened uh, even more to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So thank you, my friend. I appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.